sheesh, you don't need that sung just before you come to a sermon like this one. There seems to be an expectancy from the singing of that particular hymn that revival will come within the next 20 minutes. I'm pretty much not sure of that. But uh, interesting, when we start out in this series, the worship leaders were all a little bit nervous. Who was going to get it? Who was going to have to build an entire service around lust? And the truth is that we got providential, although to be truthful, we were a little bit more particular because it seems that uh, what the guys do this particular Sunday in the month, which is a little bit more traditional than the other, was our only hope of finding worship songs. And I hope you heard in our worship songs this morning how these uh, hymns do deal with many of the temptations and the difficulties of everyday life. I'm not sure that uh, Matt and Chris and all the other guys in the worship songs that are being written now are dealing with some of the same issues. So it's good to have David and Richard and Rose particularly this morning. Gluttony and lust. Um, Where do you start? I start with Frederick Buechner. I always kind of start with Frederick Buechner. He's an American Presbyterian um, who writes novels and books and all kinds of other insights. And he has a wonderful little book called Wishful Thinking, which is kind of a Uh, an ABC dictionary of the seeker's life, I think, is on the front of it. And so you can go through and see what does predestination mean. I'll wait to order it from uh, Amazon uh, or buy it in a local bookshop, um, if there are any. Um, uh, I'll not give you the secret of that. Or wine. He's very good on wine. But on gluttony and lust, here's what he says. And it's only this sentence. With sin, he's got a theological artistic kind of couple of pages. But when it comes to gluttony and lust, he says one sentence for each. Gluttony, he says, the glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. A glutton is one who raids the icebox for a cure for spiritual malnutrition. Lust, he says, is the craving for salt of a person who is dying of thirst. Lust is the craving for salt of a person who is dying of thirst. Truthfully, when I wrote those two things down, I thought, short service, let's end at a quarter to 11. Let's surprise the Sunday school teachers for one week. And, um, and then I thought, nah, they'll probably want an extra 10 or 15 minutes. <clears throat> so let me unpack some of this stuff that I've been thinking about over these last number of days. And it's fascinating. And first of all, can I say, I'll look at gluttony first and then we'll seamlessly move from gluttony into lust. Um, But when it it comes to both of them, uh, them, the one thing to say right at the outset is that the Bible is very much for food. There's a lot of things that happen in the Bible around food, around parties, around all kinds of hospitality. So what we're not saying here is that the Bible is making rules that will curtail in some way what we do when it comes to eating. Acts 2 is a good example of the early church meeting and eating together and hospitality being very important to the play. What relieved your minister particularly this week was um, that monks were of a roly-poly nature. Oh, I was encouraged. And um, that basically when it comes up to the modern time, maybe even the very modern time, 
Um, fat wasn't particularly a sin. That's not what we're trying to deal with here. Uh, one uh, commentator that I read said, here's the surprise. Gluttony isn't eating too much food. Gluttony is being preoccupied with food, regardless of how much or how little we eat. Gluttony is that preoccupation with food that distracts us from the profounder aspects of life. It's idolatry of food in some ways. It's when food becomes a distraction or a substitute for those things that we really should be craving or seeking after. St. Gregory the Great and Thomas Aquinas are fantastic in this. And be ready for those of us who live with some of the best coffee shops in Belfast just 50 yards away for what they were suggesting are the five symptoms or signs of gluttony. Eating before the time of meals in order to satisfy the palate. Oh, they have biblical reason. Biblical reasons for everything. Jonathan was eating a little honey when his father Saul commanded no food to be taken before the evening meal. I guess what Gregory and Thomas Aquinas would say is that elevenses and threes are gluttony. Here's a good one. I like this one. Seeking delicacies and better quality of food to gratify the vile sense of taste. So seeking delicacies. Do you know those cupcakes that are popular at the minute? St. Gregory the Great and Thomas Aquinas would be having a go at those cupcakes. They would be picketing outside the very shops that would dare to stock them. Or even, how dare we look at the paper for a review of restaurants? Because it's saying those who want a better quality of food aren't happy. And this will be one of the things that will seep through all of this morning, coming from two weeks ago. It's this spirituality of enough spirituality of sufficiency. What they would be suggesting is that we're not satisfied with enough. We wanted to be better, tastier. In fact, you could say at this point that they're suggesting that we're trying to make our eating, as would be used now a lot, a little bit sexier. Might come to that later. Third, the open house meals are in trouble today, actually, because we need to hear this one. Seeking after sauces and seasonings for the enjoyment of the palate. Now they're getting ridiculous. They're suggesting HP sauce and um, uh, tomato sauce um, are a little bit gluttonous. They do go at number four for one that I think in our day we can understand. Certainly he who is in front of you can understand. Exceeding the necessary amount of food. Possibly. Five taking food too much and too much eagerness when eating the proper amount um, and even if the food is not luxurious. So eating it too fast. I suppose we put our kids under a bit of pressure there with our marshmallow. Those who eat it fast. Those would be the five things that St. Gregory the Great, Thomas Aquinas, those church fathers, leaders would have suggested. Is that it? Are those the things? John Wesley well, he didn't make it any easier for us because John Wesley told his people to get out of the coffee shops. He was mad against coffee shops. 
The thing in his day was that people who'd got <clears throat> converted through his meetings, rallies, evangelism, instead of using the money for gambling and alcohol and various things like that, had a little bit of money to spare. So they would then, <clears throat> instead of using it in those ways, they got all into coffee shops, tea and different teas, and some teas from overseas were coming in. And it made, he would have suggested, Wesley would have suggested, it took the people out of their communities into these coffee shops, which made them, he said, very snooty. And he told them to get out of their coffee shops and away from their snootiness and back to where they should be. That's how he dealt with gluttony. I couldn't help sort of connecting that to something I was watching this week on the news, which was that at this moment in time, afternoon tea is the thing in the United Kingdom. People are spending 100 pounds for afternoon tea in some of London's hotels. It's making more money at the moment than evening meals and lunches. The catering industry is making more money from afternoon tea, cup of tea, couple of wee buns, than they are from the rest of their menus. And you want to suggest to yourself, maybe through Wesley, maybe through what the other guys are saying here, is this another way that we're becoming decadent and luxurious in a world of need? Is gluttony when we put above other things the importance of other things? To pay a hundred pounds for your afternoon tea seems to me to be a little bit decadent. Proverbs 23 and verse 20 and 21. In fact, let me start at verse 19. Listen, my children, and be wise, and set your heart on the right path. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. For drunkards and gluttons become poor, and drowsiness clothes them in rags. Do not join those who drink too much wine or gorge themselves on meat. One of the things that really struck me as I was preparing for today was how food is more important than the seven deadly sins as we're using as a, a kind of a, a base for these seven enemies to the soul than drink. Drink's not mentioned unless it can be included in the gluttony. It's easy to make respectable certain things. We could say, for instance, those people are out at the egg in the boat every Friday night paying 40 quid on alcohol. It's just feeding the, uh, the landlords or the people who own the pubs and what are they getting for it? 100 pound for afternoon tea, on the other hand, is quite a respectable thing because did you see that Mariah Marmaduke Smythe was in beside us on that particular afternoon? We've got to be careful about what we make respectable and what we don't make respectable. And in the world that we live in, a world full of bulimia, anorexia, and the obese, where those are words that are thrown around far more than they were when I was eight or nine or 10, we have to ask ourselves where we are when it comes to food within our own culture. And I suppose the bottom line for this morning is, that these are spiritual disciplines. 
I battle with weight. I openly confess that. I didn't until I was 30, because when you run 70 miles a week, play football three times and a couple of rounds of golf, you're not going to. But once my metabolism stopped doing those things, I took the wrong gene, my mum's instead of my dad's. I got myself involved in something that doesn't give a lot of time outside work to do exercise. Then suddenly you find yourself battling with something that you weren't conditioned to battle. But the bottom line is that this is a spiritual discipline. That this is something that we've got to consider as spiritual. Going out for afternoon tea might be a spiritual issue. Going to the icebox when we need a little bit of comfort instead of going to God is a spiritual issue. We need to look at the spiritual disciplines and how we live. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20. I have the right to do anything. Oh, to finish it there. And yet that's true. I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but I will not be mastered by anything. You say food for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy them both. The body, however, is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites with a prostitute is one with her body? For it is said the two will become one flesh. But whoever is united with the Lord is one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? who is in you, whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. The Bible is also for sex. It's designed by God. It's encouraged by God. But again, in its rightful place. Not a place that curtails, but a place that releases to the full possibilities of what two becoming one really are. We read at the start of wedding services, or I have many, many times, that this marriage is the perfect place for the fulfillment of the physical, the emotional, and in every other way. God's not against it, but for our own good, he has given us some guidelines. The dictionary defines lust as an intense or unrestrained sexual craving. Frederick Buechner again, in his book, Godric, if I only encourage you today to start reading Frederick Buechner, today will have been useful. It is the ape that gibbers in our loins. Tame him as we will by day, he rages all the wilder in our dreams by night. Just when we think we're safe from him, he raises up his ugly head and smirks. Bill Hybels, and this, I think, is the important part. Heibel says, lust is the reduction of a human being, a person made in the image of God. Remember last week? Do you remember what Andy was telling us about mission being based on 
the image of God, seeing people made in the image of God, when it comes back both to gluttony and lust, both to how we discipline ourselves in the way we eat and drink, and in the way that we carry out our sexual behavior. At the end of the day, lust is the reduction of a human being, a person made in the image of God, to a body, a thing, capable of satisfying our sexual desires. When we lust, we don't care if that person matters to God. We don't care if that person is parents or brothers or sisters. We don't care anything about them other than our own selfish physical needs. And can I say that <clears throat> this all is contextualized in a world that no other generation has had to deal with? Oh, Jesus, I have promised in all the temptations and all the world that dazzles, had no idea about the world that would dazzle before us. Sex is the most frequently used word on internet search engines. It is the most popular hook used to attract viewers to mainline talk shows and films. 90% of all sexual encounters in television and the movies are between unmarried people. 90%. A typical hour of primetime TV these days, that's primetime TV, TV characters, characters talk about or engage in sexual activity about 15 times, 15 times per hour. And I think that meant that when our teenagers get to 20, they'll have had 70,000 experiences of somebody talking or going through the motions of the act of sexual intercourse on our televisions. 70,000, and that's not those who maybe watch more than even they should. And beyond that, beyond that, some of the fashions that we live with in the 21st century don't help anybody deal with this temptation of lust. I remember one evening... <laughs> coming out of, um, I think it was our St. Patrick's Day event last year, um, up in the space before I came to Fitzroy, must be two years ago, um, and Father Gary and I were coming down the stairs pretty late because we did this St. Patrick's Day event, uh, but all the other bars were getting ready for whatever else, and we literally had to walk out of the Queen's Students' Union looking at the ceiling. It was the only possible way to get out without images that really no man or priest, or minister should have to face. And sometimes I get criticized when I question that. And yet, I think the understanding has to come on both sides of this sexual divide of what some clothing can actually cause men to think about or even do. When I see some of our young students going home at night drunk in what they're wearing, all you can see in a world where lust is ever around us. Danger. Danger. Absolute danger. We've seen in the passage today the real dangers of this. We're not talking about Father Gary or me. We're talking about King David, a man after God's own heart. His man for an entire generation. 
And just one move leads a domino effect. I remember a number of years ago, it's maybe 10, 12, 13 years ago, um, we used to have a group that met in our house on a Thursday evening and uh, one particularly week, a friend of some of them, most of them actually, had got himself into some trouble and had ended up in prison and had then ended up taking his own life. And we were gathered around trying to deal with this and uh, it was difficult to deal with. And I remember one of the group just stopping and saying, I wish I could get him back to that moment where the first domino fell and then caused all the other dominoes to fall. And in a world where it's not politically correct to talk about sin, that's a great description of what God's trying to do with us in the scriptures. He's not trying to spoil our life by telling us we can't eat. He's not trying to spoil our life by telling us that sex is wrong. He's not trying to spoil our lives by setting these things in place. God can see where the domino might fall. And if that one domino falls, then carnage can be the consequent results of it. This is an incredible passage when you read it today in church. Here's a man who saw something, who clearly lusted after that something, who was clearly greedy, living in a world where he wasn't thinking about the spirituality of enough for sufficiency. He wanted it and he was going to get it. And when he got it, he got himself into a real mess. And when he tried to fix it the ways that would maybe cover it up, he got himself into more of a mess. And he ends up murdering someone's husband because of one domino effect that he thought he might be able to cover up as the king of the country with his wife. This is incredible. And for some of us, we'll, we'll watch tonight. Can we wait until Rory tees off? Janice can't believe it because I'm more nervous because he's four shots in the lead than if I was if he was two shots behind. But would he be in the lead? Had the king of Gulf, the man who was the computer, the robot, invincible, not had one domino effect that almost ruined his life and maybe has ruined his career, even with a good score on Friday. We watch the television tonight, if we do, and we see Tiger Woods a different person because one move in this domino effect of lust caused him to lose almost everything. But we don't have to go to famous people who have the money to do it. We were at a party a number of weeks ago and this guy was sitting from England, an American living in England, and he was going, have you read that story in the papers about the Sunday school teachers? And they murdered each other's husband and wife? And the guy on the other side of the room said, yeah, I used to work with him. And suddenly we were into this small country that Northern Ireland is and this guy was like tell me more of this story this is an incredible story where even in our own country we have seen the effects 
of one domino falling and causing carnage across lives and families and beyond. What are we saying? We're saying that we are battling with some serious issues. When it comes to how we battle with uh, food and alcohol, we need to be aware that we are made in the image of God, that we are bought with a price, that we are the temples of the Holy Spirit. I was kind of chastised in my own mind a while back because I see all these guys running. And you know the thing that really gets me? If you see anybody running down the Strandmillis Hill, well, you tell them to go and lie down. That's a pathetic excuse for running. I used to hit that after six miles. And it was more of a challenge after six miles up the way. No point in having a hill and running down it. Although I suppose some would say, if you go up one, well, you don't. Because if you go up that hill and you run the route I run, sadly, there was no downhill, but it was better for it. And I used to say, these guys that are out running, they're not running six miles in 36 minutes like I used to do. They think they're runners, but they're really not runners. And then maybe as I looked in the mirror one morning, the Lord said, but they're doing it now, Steve. And you did it 25 years ago chastise. Some of us have battles with all kinds of things. And I think the bottom line today is that we're down to addictions, habits, obsessions, idolatries, when it's not the spirituality of sufficiency. That might not be for you food. It might not be for you lust, although there is one very natural craving, certainly speaking as a man, that we have to constantly and guard against. It might be books or TV or Facebook or MP3s or houses or cars or guitars or shoes. But what we've got to be careful to do is make sure that we don't go for the icebox or the television or the shopping mall to deal with our spiritual malnutrition. That we don't put comfort eating or we don't put some fantasizing in the place of the way that we want to follow Jesus. And the most wonderful thing of all is that David, from this chapter that we read, knew forgiveness. It's in the Acts of the Apostles that it tells us he was a man after God's own heart. A man for his generation. He knew forgiveness. So whatever we're dealing with in our idolatries, our obsessions, or our addictions this morning, we can be and have been forgiven. And the resurrection of Jesus, and we look at this on Easter Sunday when we've dealt with all these enemies, we will look at how the battle, the war, is won. And we can know a clean heart. And we can know ourselves white as snow. And we can have restoration, restoration of our salvation and the joy that comes with that. But as we go into the world, if I want to go back a week, what Andy said is crucial. I wonder, I wonder. I think it's a fascinating story and there may be all kinds of psychopathic things going on in it. 
But I wonder if our own adulterous, murderous fellow countrymen, when he looked at somebody else's wife, did he see them made in the image of God? Or did he see them just as another sinner that's worthless? Because many of our churches have preached our unworthiness. Many of our churches have made us feel guilty and downtrodden and burdened and who are we, we're useless worms. So if they do that to us, have they done that to how we see each other? When he murdered his own wife, did he see the image of God? When he murdered his lover's husband, did he see the image of God? When we look at ourselves, do we see the image of God? And when we look at others, do we see the image of God? Maybe that's going to take us in a Northern Ireland evangelicalism a long time to decondition and recondition. But maybe it might be some of the secrets to how we deal with these enemies of the soul. To see ourselves as God sees us. And to treat that with the preciousness that we should treat it. Me and you. Let's pray together. Lord, if we're honest, gluttony and lust can go with us almost every day. And we pray, Lord, that these two things, or drunkenness or other kinds of greed or obsession or addiction, that we'd be able to break them by your Spirit, that your Spirit's self-control would begin to flourish in our lives, that we would find the self-discipline and the spiritual discipline to deal with the temptations and the lights that dazzle and all the other things that would take us away from those promises that we've made to Jesus. We pray that we would see ourselves and see one another as those not only made in the image of God, as Andy was talking about last week, but bought with a price, as we were reading from Corinthians this week. And that that would affect how we treat ourselves and one another. And that this freedom that Jesus has given us would not be curtailed by the things that we have to be disciplined about. We ask it, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. We close our service.